Welcome to Gray Maybe, a limited series podcast and social experiment based on the topic of abortion. My name is Jillian Schmitz. I'm a professional dancer, actor, teacher, author, artist, and cat lover. Through my own personal journey of recovery, I found that things aren't just black or white, or a simple yes or no. For me, in my recovery, there has been mostly gray area and a lot of maybes. In most of my stories, you can find the gray maybe. I'll be sharing my own process through personal stories, interviews, and hopefully stories of others in an effort to help lessen the stigma and shame of abortion. If you'd like me to read your story on this podcast, anonymous or otherwise, please email graymaybestories at gmail.com. G-R-E-Y-M-A-Y-B-E-S-T-O-R-I-E-S at gmail.com. Before we get started, if you haven't already, please subscribe on whichever platform you're using to catch future episodes of Gray Maybe. A note before we start. While the topic of abortion and my belief in it being easy and accessible to all people who can become pregnant is a comfortable topic for me, sharing my own personal stories is not. I have a justifiable amount of fear of possible hostility and violence, both in person and or online. I also anticipate the possibility of judgment ranging from my own family to strangers, in addition to the potentiality of losing certain work opportunities for publicizing my own experiences. I'm telling my stories and the stories of others through the lens of our own experiences. The revelation of our processes are ours to tell. If you disagree with the views or stories on this podcast, know that I'm not speaking on anything other than the experiences and viewpoints of myself and others. Take what you like and leave the rest. Any feelings this podcast activates in the listener is for the listener to process and recover from. Any criticism you have based on these experiences and choices are yours, and they are not anybody else's burden to carry. All right, it has been almost two weeks since the election, and if you've been following the podcast, you know that part of the uh, reason that I started the podcast was to help with getting some energy and some uh, focus on the election coming up, specifically a lot of the stuff surrounding reproductive rights and reproductive freedoms. And since it's been almost two weeks since the election, I haven't addressed in detail everything that happened. And I wanted to do that with this episode. And I am so lucky because my producer, producer Roderick, who I've brought up here and there in um in some of the previous episodes, is actually someone who deals with politicians and politics um, and parties and campaigns and all of those things. So I actually am going to have him on the podcast today. I'm going to have producer Roderick on the podcast because he is more than capable of walking me through and discussing some of this stuff politically and kind of... uh, unwrapping everything that happened uh, in this last election. So I'm going to introduce producer Roderick Barge, and I want you, Roderick, to please tell listeners uh, your credentials, kind of maybe a bit of your background for people who don't know you as well as I do. All right. Uh, Thanks for having me. 
uh, producer Roderick. <laughs> you say you say thanks for having me, but the funny thing is, is I have you every episode because you you're helping edit and and do these episodes, and you're like the silent producer when I'm using uh, the interview uh, function or the interview system. So uh, great to have you back this time, Roderick, as a speaking guest. Yes, I'm. I'm very excited to be here. <laughs> Again. Yeah. Um, so let's. I guess real quick, my name's Roderick. I am a uh, licensed attorney with some experience in campaigns and campaign and political work, I guess. Uh, I've, I've worked in what's called voter protection. Um, I've worked on various campaigns over the last few years that some people have heard of. Uh, I can mention, let's see. You are being so modest. So, so just for the listeners, like think of the biggest ones and that's the one. So he can't always say exactly, but well, there was a special election for Senate in 2017 and I was a volunteer for that. Uh, there was an election in 2020 for president and I worked for a campaign uh, for that. And so those are some of the things I have done. And then, you know, currently I work for uh, a nonprofit organization that does uh, one of its main missions is voting rights. So, I love it. I love it. And this is something you and I have had a lot in common and discussed quite regularly. Um, when we met, you were super pumped that I was doing postcards for um, some of the swing states. Uh, and yes. if you, go, if People you guys call you a know super volunteer, that's you would yeah. refer to as a super vol. Well, and this is a thing like I want to talk about that in a little bit, but there are things you can do that don't mean going to people's houses and knocking on doors that don't mean calling strangers if you have an aversion to that which I do um, so there's always things you can do that I do want to discuss um, later on for people who might be inspired to do a little extra to help uh, get the vote out or you know work with issues that are important to them okay so it's been two weeks almost two weeks and it's pretty clear that the Democratic Party seemed a bit more energized in their turnout and in how things went. Why? And this is, I'm going to ask you personally, because you also deal with like a lot of data and a lot of details of why things happen the way and who's doing what and why they're doing that. And But I also want to know personally, because we all have our personal takes as well as what we think might, you know, be the reason why certain things happen. So I guess you could answer this if you have data on it, but you could also answer this just personally. Why do you think the Democratic Party was more energized in this uh, election? Uh, I think two things. I would say one would be you would look at some of the recent Supreme Court decisions and the results of those uh, of, of those decisions. Roe v. Wade, yes. Yeah, um, the, the Dobbs case, which led to essentially the overturning of Roe v. Wade, uh, that energized a lot of people to want to come out and vote in this midterm uh, that might have stayed home. Um, you know, there, you know, this whole thing about, uh, I guess, the, the news call it the red wave. That was it's what was anticipated based on, you know, what, what historical trends were and not necessarily maybe what was happening when you looked around the country as a result of, of you know, after the overturning of, of Roe v. Wade, several states uh, decided to, you know, get into gear to do whatever they could to make abortions harder because it, it was no longer federally protected. And so I think about trigger laws. Right. 
And so, uh, trigger laws and 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 just some other laws and some other places in general are just complete. Uh, um, it's a free for all. Out- They're like, oh, sweet, completely outlawing the process. Um, hmm. I mean, what that's what their intentions are. Or you you know, there are instances where you know people in the Senate, um, like uh, that that have said that they wouldn't, you know, we we would leave this to the states after Roe v. Wade was overturned, and then they turn around and decide that they want to pass laws in the Senate that would make it federally harder to have abortions, which would obviously affect all 50 states. And so that I think that seeing that was a result of uh, of getting people wanting to turn out. And then, of course, uh, the things that could affect people long term, uh, which uh, I guess longer term as far as, you know, I, I will be here from 50 years, 50 years from now, and this would affect me. And that would be somewhat a, a younger voter. Right. We had a uh, a, a higher than usual turnout for people that fall within the the Gen Z category, and you know this is like their you know their their first maybe second election that they could have voted in since 2020, and so you know that that encouraged more of them to show up than they might have you know just looking around at what's been happening around the country. So I believe uh, just for people in case they're unsure, and you can fact check me on this, I believe Gen Z, as far as a voting demographic, is going to be. About 25 and under, so 18, you know, 18 is the legal voting age. So 18 to 25, that's what we're looking at as far as Gen Z. Uh, Gen millennial, Gen the millennial generation is the oldest millennials are around 40 or 41, maybe mm-hmm. 42. And uh, they're as young as I want to say 27, 26, 27, right within there. Uh, just in case people want to know what that voting block kind of looks like. Uh, obviously there's Gen Z's that are younger than 18 years old. Uh, but those are, you know, 18 to 25 is the legal voting bracket for them. So I also think that you're right with the Dobbs decision. That was really what energized people. I also think, uh, guns were an issue, you know, gun, gun rights or, or gun protection, all the, you know, whatever, more strict gun rights was also a concern for people. I think people were concerned about the economy and or uh, inflation. But I don't think that any one party has really offered solutions to that. You know, I mean, I think there's the party that's in charge right now, I think is trying to do something about it. But I didn't hear really any alternate, you know, plans on the other side of what they would do differently or how they would combat it. So I don't I think that that red wave was hoping that that would affect something, but I don't know if it really drove home any core ideas or policies that would help that. Um, and I don't know if that contributed to that at all. Uh, but I do think you're right. I do think um, the I think the abortion issue was massive. And even though I would have liked to have had more men step forward and be really loud about that also being their right, you know, uh, because I, as many women as I know that don't want to have unplanned pregnancies, there are men that don't want to pay 18 years of child support or have, you know, a child with someone, you know, and, and that's already kind of their situation. Men are kind of in this, you know, well, it's not really your body or your choice. So you, for the most part, you are kind of at the whim of what's going to happen, but to then have the government be like, well, this is your only option now. That's pretty frightening. And I heard vasectomies went up exponentially. (laughs) Hmm. 
I don't have those stats. But anyways, um, I'm getting off topic. I'll, I'll bring it back. I agree with what, what you said. I also think that there wasn't the data to back up a red wave. There was a lot of talk about it, a lot of media talk, but the data was saying differently. The data was saying differently as far as uh, money being raised and donations. It was saying differently as far as what happened in Kansas. Kansas was one of the first states to be able to vote on banning abortion or not for their state. And it happened in the summer, which typically is super low turnout for the Democratic Party. And it passed overwhelmingly. And this is a what what people would call a ruby red state. I mean, voting for the summer would probably be low for anybody. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's it's an uncommon thing to do. But yeah, I mean, you're right. So I thought that that was a precursor to what could happen uh, in November, which is what seemed to be the case. Um, okay, the there were five abortion measures throughout the states. Um, on the ballot, like abortion was on the ballot for five of these different measures. It was in Montana. It was in uh, Vermont, California, Kentucky, and Michigan. Um, I think those are the five, uh, and I can look it up. But those, nonetheless, all I think what five, we do know, yeah, you're about to say there. <laughs> yeah, all five of them passed with really quite a large margin mm-hmm. uh, as far as votes go. Um, but with that being said, the seat races, the House and the Senate seat races, and even the government races were so close, right? So you have these abortion ballots that are like 70, 80 percent it's passing, you know, in the high 70s, which is kind of unheard of. That's a, that's a win, win, win. But then these House and Senate seats were so close. So I looked at that and I thought, okay, so abortion is very popular, right? As far as wanting rights and access, even if a person is voting that they don't want to have an abortion or they don't, you know, believe in abortion for themselves, they saw it as a right that should be protected, right? Um, But then a lot of those people went and voted for people who don't want that to be a right or that are running platforms that are counterintuitive to that. So why do you think that happened? And and I don't need you to have even data. I'm just wondering because you work in this field, like why do you think that happened? Uh, there is probably, a, I mean, uh, my observation, I think there's a disconnect between seeing a ballot measure that doesn't have a, an, a party associated with it. It's just like, hey, there's this right. What should you do? Um, should 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 people have it or should people take it away? And most folks are like, no, we shouldn't take it away. People should have these rights. Uh, but then when you look on other parts of the ballot and there are candidates who are arguing that we should be taking away these rights, there does not seem to be a connection, bet- drawing a connection between the two um, because they may still vote for these folks who have the intentions of doing that while voting for, you know, like you said, overwhelmingly a measure uh, that allowed uh, for these rights to stay in place in these individual states. Uh, I do think also um, another thing that can contribute to this is the f- is you know state ballot measures versus when you look at Congress specifically uh, gerrymandering would would have a lot to do with um, having such a tight House race uh, when when you have and 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 Senate as well but as you see there 
there's the possibility for a majority there, a slight majority, but still a majority um, in in the U.S. Senate for Democrats. And so I, I do think having a, a having the ballot measures separate from the candidates themselves allows for people to 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 themselves be able to say, well, I think these rights should stay in place, but I'm OK voting for someone who might take away those rights or they just might not know that 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 these folks because mm-hmm. i mean it's just a it's a lot for people to take in during this time it's like this person could could do all these things they could not tell the truth about the things that they will or will not do and so it's it's a lot easier to select uh, a and i'm wondering how many people have already turned off this episode because they've already they're already like ah oh, politics i'm over it but um and I, for me, politics is my sports. I don't watch sports. I don't have a sporting team. I don't have my favorite players. Politics is my sports. And every two years, minus the smaller, more local elections, which I'm just as interested in, if not more, because uh, life hack people, guess what? Those are the elections that actually directly affect you more day in and day out than some of these bigger elections. Yes. Um, so, uh, you know, politics is my sports. And I sometimes bet on them and I sometimes and I I get really amped up about it I have my favorite you know politicians like I have my favorite like people would have their favorite sports players um you know I like to know their stats you know all those things so I get super pumped about it but I get that a lot of people you know it's so much like you said so much information and uh it can get overwhelming so you mentioned gerrymandering and I want to bring that up uh because we hear it a lot and I want you to explain um in as as street term as you can, so as easily as you can to the layman, what gerrymandering exactly is? Uh, it's the process of dividing uh, geographic districts uh, of of voters in a particular manner that gives the advantage to one party or another, to one political party. So ger- gerrymandering itself is a completely negative term <laughs> it's there's no positive gerrymandering it's it's, it's unless a, it's for your team right unless it helps your team <laughs> right the sportsification of, of politics yes yes uh but yeah that's that that's the that's the the basic gist of it is it's it's get one the, the drawer of the lines is drawing it for to give a particular party an advantage it's and not a fair drawing of the lines right so it's not like a big block it's not like you look at a state and everything's like blocked out in even blocks. And they're like, this is, you know, this block is district this and is being, you know, this election and this block is this. It's like all right. s- like weird ass shapes that have no rhyme or reason. And mm-hmm. but what if that's like, like, let's say if I'm on team one and I have been able to gerrymander this uh, area to suit my needs and I've gotten basically all the people that are team one in that district wouldn't all the team two people just take another district? Like, why does it, why, I don't know if I'm going to answer or ask this question correctly, but why, if you're gerrymandering it to fit your team's win, why does that give you an advantage? Because aren't there just other people that would be on the other side? Yes, uh, but they, they have the ability to dilute those other people by splitting them up. Oh, um, their term packing and cracking is something that's that's used uh constantly when when talking about gerrymandering and either term either term what it does is dilute the voting power of the people 
who are not, you know, on your team, right? So if I pack a bunch of people into a district, they may have, they may get their own district that they can comfortably elect whomever they want. But because it's so many people in that district, then they probably have the ability to elect more people if they weren't all in one block together, if they were spread out amongst other districts. And so one way that they do that is to push them all together. Uh, and and that, that dilutes the vote. Another way is if they are um, cracked, as they call it, and that and what and what happens there is taking a group of people and splitting them up amongst a, a bunch of districts, which again dilutes their vote because when they could have the ability to elect someone that they want, they don't because they're amongst a larger group of people who have a clear advantage. So could I, this may be a really stupid um, comparison, but would you say gerrymandering is to states what electoral votes is to the U.S. election, the presidency? Uh... It's not, I know it's not the same process, but there is a similar result, right? Because Los Angeles has more people than all of these red areas put together, but we don't have as many electoral votes that show our per capita. We don't have elect, like we don't have electoral votes or we don't have Senate and House members that directly represent our population in comparison to some of these other places that have a much lower population. Well, so I think, I think gerrymandering would best would probably go equal to, although it's not even related to it, it's when you talk about an unfair representation, think about the Senate, right? California, uh, for instance, is the lar- the most populated state in America, and it gets two Senate votes. Wyoming, I think, is the least populated state in America, and it gets two Senate votes. <laughs> um, like, how is that okay? It, it's... It's the makeup of our Senate and uh, those uh, those fathers of the country like th- that, that people like to talk about, the founding right, fathers. Right, and they did that they originally. The they did that originally so that small states would get their fair shake, right? But now... Yeah, that was a thought process, yeah. It's now flipped the other side where it's like now the minority has just as much say as the majority. Yeah, and so when thinking about the house seats like you mentioned you mentioned um la for instance there are way more uh house district seats within los angeles county compared to the state of wyoming which i think wyoming only has one person in the they only have one representative in the house of representatives Mm -hmm. because of because of their population Uh, i'm sure los angeles county has who knows our population is like 20 25 people million I, yeah, that's I our population that, in Los Angeles, 3.8 million. So there are, you know, there are way more representatives in the House uh, compared to, you know, some of the smaller places. But again, you know, like you said, when you get to and in, in, in California, again, California, because of its population, has way more electoral votes than Wyoming does. But when it gets to specific types of representation, whether it be uh, in the Senate or the or the way that they drew these these House seats. In a place like a, um, like a Texas, for instance, the way that those house seats are drawn, you know, Texas has a Republican legislature versus California, which one has a Democratic legislature, but I also think California. You can correct me on this. 
California has an, an independent process in drawing their, their districts. So I don't have those answers. Well, so, so well, well the, the difference between the two is, is that even though you, you have two different states that are large and they have different types of ways that they choose, they have, they have different groups choosing uh, the maps that they have, the congressional maps. And, you know, for Texas, again, Texas has the ability to draw lines that are way more partisan than a place like a, I, for sure, Arizona is the case. I, I can use Arizona as an instance because the state of Arizona, they have an independent, uh, they have an independent, independent redistricting commission who dr they draw the lines based on whatever information they have. And it's, it's, it's supposed to be the fairest way as opposed to leaving it to the state legislature, um, whichever party's in power to do so. And you can actually see that. You can see it on the map when Khaki Kranaki, that's what I call him, Khaki Kranaki, because that's who I watch because he's fun and funny. Ever since Leslie Jones um, was thirsting after him during one of the elections, the 2020 election, I think, I have I like to watch him do his thing. Um, he, you can, When they pull up the maps and show, you know, these different, you know, counties, you can see on Arizona, it looks more like giant boxes. And then you go into some of these other states and they look like the weirdest jigsaw puzzle you've ever seen. Yes. Like like a jigsaw puzzle that a seventh grader in shop class like, you know, like got on a wood saw and like just went crazy or something. It's like it doesn't make any sense. It's all over the place. There's these little pockets and these little edges and it's really insane. So that's interesting. I didn't know that you could have independent district drawers for lack of a better word yeah i would trust that seventh grader also to draw better maps than the ones that we currently <laughs> have and and i mean to that point like i my, my personal opinion is like i i don't think it's these are these are this is the united states congress these are federal seats i don't think that we should be leaving it to these state legislatures to to draw these crazy unfair maps i really i, I think it's it, you know but in, in at, the, at the very least, there should be each each state has its own commission or there's just a, a commission to deal with this. But that's just you know, my political hot take. Yeah, I would agree with you on that. Um, I'd also like to see representatives in the House and Senate representing per capita of population. I, well, again, they and, and for yeah, in the Senate, yes, for sure. Um, the, the issue isn't in the house that they don't, that they don't necessarily represent per capita. It's just that they've drawn, they've, they've selected who they want in their per capita, <laughs> which gives them the advantage. Hmm. So that's, that's what the, that's what the main problem is. And, you know, we just had a census in 2020 and we know, we know what was going on in 2020, uh, both the pandemic still going on and, you know, all of the shenanigans that we saw in the news about the administration of the census and that hasn't that had an effect on the current seats that we have now uh, because there are places that probably would have lost seats if we if if the census hadn't been messed with by the by the administration at the time uh there are definitely pl places that gained seats that should not have gained seats because of the uh or or kept seats I'm excuse me um because of the administration messing with the census in in 2020 so so if you don't know what the census is, the census is a thing you get in the mail and it asks you a bunch of questions like, how many people live in your household? 
you know, and they ask, it's, it's a big questionnaire and you're supposed to fill it out and give it back to the government. And the reason it's important to do is because of things like this. It also, from my understanding, delegates which places need more money for more people to fix more things. Right. Uh, it is not, it's not a lascivious, sneaky, spy, big brother situation. It is literally to try to help the people. And I think it got very demonized in 2020. And it was really scary because I knew what the census did or, you know, how it could help politically or not. And also getting money to places that need it or not. Because they people were saying that if you're an illegal immigrant and they count you, they're coming for you. Like all this really crazy stuff. And it's it, it's really more about finding out actual population information. And if there is 10 people living in a household and some of them are undocumented and you don't declare it first, no one's coming for you. I have never heard of that happening. It is strictly to know about the population, right? And if you don't know the population, you can't allow certain things and monies because you don't have all the information. Mm -hmm. So then areas that are heavily populated that need that kind of help, that need that kind of infrastructure to help and support that population won't get it. And not because people don't care about poor people, but because poor people were lying on the censuses or did, or middle class people were lying on the censuses or whatever it was or didn't fill it out or didn't take it into account. So it's actually a really important tool that I wish more people were a little more serious about. Uh, but I don't know. People are going to believe what they're going to believe. They think that it's a big brother, whatever. I, I don't know how to change that. Uh, but I'm glad you brought that up because that is indeed how a lot of this stuff, how this information is um, uh, transferred. Again, people have politicized the census. It's just one <laughs> of those things. That's that's where we are now. So it's not right. supposed to be that hard. Okay. So this is a loaded question. I don't, and I don't know all of the answers for it, but this is a really important question for me. And it's something I wish that was talked about a little bit more in this election. And that is, how do you think we reinstate reproductive freedoms? Like what specific things can the party in charge right now or the party who's not the House or the Senate do? Like what can voters do? Like how do we how do we reverse this? Because just getting people who believe in reproductive freedom in power, that's part of the battle. But then these things don't just automatically reverse. Like, it's not instantaneous. Uh, but I do wish that the Democrats, since they support reproductive freedom, I wish they would have been a little bit more clear about what they intended on doing to secure that. And I know there's a bunch of different options, but what do you think? Like, what's the road there? What are some of the things? Um, well, like you said, you have to elect people who want to protect reproductive health uh, and reproductive freedoms and so uh, for that to happen one I mean you, you know what voters can do voters can choose people who are going to uh, advocate and, and and introduce these sorts of bills and try to get them passed and vote people out who are trying to do the opposite what uh, are those bills <laughs> I don't know the, uh, the, the 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 actual bill itself but I mean the purpose is that Voting in people who could, you know, the the term codify Roe versus Wade, 
mm-hmm. so you know passing passing a federal law that takes that takes these issues out of the hands of the state because again this is supposed to be a constitutional issue and if it's a constitutional issue then state laws sh- or should not be in place State laws can't override the the, the, the United States Constitution. Right. So in that instance, we need a federal law that says that this is a right uh, that 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 people who can become pregnant have. And so uh, that's what would need to happen, essentially, passing a federal law. And for that to happen, you'd have you have to have a Congress, a majority of the Congress to vote for something like that. You have to have a majority of the Senate to vote for something like that. Currently, uh there's this whole thing called the filibuster, which is holding that up. And then uh, if you get both Congress and Senate to pass the bill, then you have to have a president that's willing to sign it. So the way that it looks right now uh, for people who who don't want to talk about partisanship, there's only one party who appears to, to be willing to do such a thing, unfortunately, mm-hmm. uh, for the folks who want to stay out of the, the, the politicization of all of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what you have to do, uh, you know, like I said, for voters, you know, look for pro-choice candidates and vote them in, and anti-choice candidates vote them out. That's that would be the way to do that. And, and I think go go ahead. No, go ahead. Finish. Well, you 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 start when you started the question earlier, and I and this this ties back to another question. Um, you know, you would have liked to have seen Democrats do more to encourage folks to do that. And I think part of the problem is again, I think people assume that everyone was just was just aware, just, you know, just aware that this is what was happening and, 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 and this is what's going to be on the ballot. And we just have to remember that again, folks living their daily lives are not as, you know, some people may have heard about this and I'm, and most people should have heard about it. You would think, right. But it's, Mm -hmm. it's just not something that's top of mind necessarily. And so you just have to, you know, come back and, and remind folks like, these are the things that's happening. This is why you need to be out, you know, voting for, what's going on in, in, in this midterm and in future elections. Well, and I think, oh, I think there was just like a slight missed opportunity with the Democrats. I think they could have said like, it would have required them to show their hand, which I'm sure they don't want to do uh, because I don't even know what that is. And they may not be even know what that is for them specifically. But I think if they would have come across saying, look, this is what we're going to do. We're going to codify Roe. We're going to do term limits for the Supreme Court. We're going to pack the court. We're going to do the thing, right? All those things, everyone's like, yes, yes, yes. Thank you for telling me exactly what you're going to do. Because if you are not traditionally voting for Democrats, but you are for reproductive health, you may be like, yes, I want reproductive health, but I don't know what the Democrats are going to do. They haven't said what they're going to do. Are they are they just running on this to gain an election? And then are they going to sit on their hands and do nothing? You know, and it's like, yes, no one party can do everything unless they have full control of the House and the Senate. So that that is also up to the other side if they want to work with each other or not. But I think there was a slight missed opportunity to entice people to maybe say, like, this is exactly what we're going to do. But again, that would mean showing their hand. And also them being held responsible uh, for things that they may, A, not be able to get done, or B, might not want to be that radical on certain, in in the ways of going about things. That was the only thing that I thought might have been why these ballot measures passed so, you know, extremely. And then the House and the Senate was so close. Um, I think people are kind of tribal in how they vote. 
or tribal in their communities and their situations. And that's kind of what happened there. And I think it would have taken an extreme message for them to maybe change. And maybe they wouldn't have still. But okay, you did mention filibuster. Can you walk us through a little bit what a filibuster is? I keep hearing like, we're going to filibuster and pack the, like, Democrats need to filibuster and pack the court to get Roe back. You know, like, what can you tell me in the instance of of the Dobbs or, you know, reinstating Roe v. Wade or whatever, how the filibuster would be helpful or what that is? Uh, the filibuster is complicated. And I know. Not, look and, at that and, big, <laughs> long exhale before he's like, <sighs> So it, I, I'll try to keep it short and fun um so the filibuster is used by the party that is not in the majority so the minority party and it's it's the loser party (laughs) well let's be nice that can change (laughs) and no that changes every election so whoever lost essentially whoever has lower numbers the minority party right so yeah the minority party uh has the ability to use the filibuster in the senate it's a senate specific rule um the filibuster is in place in like some states, but for the purposes as we're just talking about uh, the the U.S. Senate, and in that particular instance, what happens is um, a bill is proposed, and the way that the Senate works is they just don't offer a bill for it to be voted on, and the majority wins. First, the bill has to be voted on to allow it to even there's, be up for a vote. Right, so they you have they, to they vote. Have, to they have vote. a debate. They have the bill, and then they have to debate it. And then, I think you need. You, I mean, you need sixty votes to stop debate, so that you can move on to the next phase. Where, at that point, majority wins as far as the vote goes. And so, as it stands right now, uh, if you can't convince, you know, ten, fifteen people in a minority party to come on board with you to get above this sixty vote, just to let it just to let it go to the next phase of just actually having a vote because they don't have to vote with you. They can just agree to allow this to go to the vote and see what happens if everybody, if there's a, if there's just a up or down vote as they call it. And Mm -hmm. it's in this instance, uh, the minority party uh, does not allow there. It's just, it's just become a thing where we have to have 60 votes to pass anything, even though 60 votes aren't required to pass anything, it's just 60 votes are required to get to the phase where you pass anything. And so that's, that's my non-expert description of the filibuster. Uh, but, okay. But what is, so if someone says we're going to filibuster, what is that? What is, what would that be? Like, we're going to prevent, mean? we're going to prevent you from getting the 60 votes necessary to make it to, to, to make it to the next round of actually voting on the bill. We're, we're not, we're going to not let you, uh, move the bill on to the next phase. And so and and so what filibuster used to be is um whatever delay tactics are necessary to stop the to stop the vote from proceeding. Now it's just like, hey, you all don't have a total of 60 votes because we make up 40, you know, some number above 40. And so we we we've already decided we're not going to agree with you to allow us to get to a vote because you have the majority because if it mm-hmm. gets to a vote it's going to pass. Right. And so that's that's essentially what the filibuster is now. So why are people in the Democratic Party talking about filibustering when it comes to packing the court? Like that seems like the opposite of what like 
I keep hearing that, like people are like, we need to filibuster and pack the court. Well, that seems like an opposition, right? You would put forth legislation to add more justices. And it seems like the opposing party would filibuster that. Yeah, there, there, I, there, there seems to be some confusion there. I don't have an answer for that one. Okay. That just might be also me misunderstanding things because that happens a lot. Um, okay. So you talked about codifying Roe, making it a federal law. Right now, there are five states that have um, enacted into their state constitution reproductive rights. And I was correct. They are California, Michigan, Vermont, Montana, and Kentucky. And also, I would guess Kansas because they voted down their abortion ban. Uh, it's not in their state constitution necessarily, but they weren't. their trigger ban did not go into effect. Um, and there might be some other states that already have uh, reproductive freedoms enshrined in their state constitution. I don't know what those are right now. Um, but you talked about codifying Roe so that it would be kind of federal law again. Uh, we talked a little bit of, about filibuster. Um, there is, I heard there is legislation right now about term limits for justices, introducing a bill that would give an 18-year term limit to SCOTUS judges, Supreme Court of the United States those people would have a term limit. Right now, they don't. That's why it's such a big deal to have an appointed Supreme Court member because they're there. It's a life appointment, and uh, people have gotten hip to that, and those parties are putting younger and younger justices on that Supreme Court so that they have a longer and longer time that they can utilize them because everybody knows if you're younger, you have more years to serve on that um, court. So, that term limit thing, that is, have you heard anything about that? Um, there were, it's called the Term Act, and it's it's an acronym for something. I don't know the exact term. But, uh, but yeah, it was, it was proposed this summer uh, in both the House and the Senate. Um, again, it's one of those things where for it to proceed, it can pass in the House. It could have passed in the House. Uh, for it to, for it to pass in the Senate, it would have required uh, 60 votes. So that's where okay. that's I, as of there. I don't think there's been, I think it's been proposed. I don't know. I, I, I don't, I don't recall if it was, um, if it went beyond that. Okay. So that's in the mix. We don't know yeah. the outcome yet. Um, and then as far as packing the court, why do you think the Democrats aren't pushing super hard to pack the court? Or, or are they? And I'm just not hip to it. Um, I, I don't think so. I'm, I'm not aware of anything. I, my only, my guess is that, you know, once, once we start moving beyond nine, then it's, it, it just may never stop. Um, and but so also, I, don't you, know, you think that's not a lot of people to represent America and the population? Well, that's not the intent, but I, I get what you're saying. <laughs> I like, mean, how, they're not. We haven't to, expanded for a long time, and our population has continued to expand. Uh, not knowing, I'm not a, like a, a legal historian, but uh, so these people. <laughs> how come so, these people aren't supposed to be like it's it's just it's supposed to be like any other agency, right, or any other bureau, like you know, a commission, regardless of how necessarily the the population would grow. The commission, like this, is not supposed to be a representation of the population. It's just, it's just nine people uh, that are there who are supposed to interpret the law and get it right, and then whatever. 
and but that was back when people actually believed that the court was non-political. Uh, yeah. I mean, as far as the people that they're applying, that they're that they're that are being um, uh, added to the court, you know, appointed appointed to these positions, and we've seen um, in m- most recently that all of these the, the the people that have been appointed have been, I mean, for lack of a better term, ignoring any law that's been in place and proceeding to do whatever they want while claiming that that's not what they were going to do. So it's, it's not necessarily supposed to be a situation of, you know, uh, a represent, uh, 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 a representation of the population when it comes to those numbers. Um, But yeah, I, I think it's, it's one of those situations where people fear again, having not talked to anybody, the fear is that once it starts, it's not going to stop. And so then the next person will want to add more people. And it's just, so I, that's my only guess. I don't, I don't have a good answer. Hmm. Okay. I don't either. I, uh, I just am very upset by the fact that it seems like very, very unpopular legislation is being dictated by a minority of people and people who are representing a minority. That's, um, a minority in population. Uh, okay. Um, okay. So, uh, during this whole voting, this election, I was going to say during this whole voting process. Yes, that's called an election. Um, during this election, I was very fixated on house and Senate. Um, and I kept seeing governor's races and seeing the Democrats pick up governor's seats, which I was like, yay, but House and Senate. I was very focused on the House and Senate. Um, but can you tell me, why is it important to gain governor's seats specifically? Like, why was that also very important this election? Um, well, again, when you look at what's going on, you know, we'll, we'll continue to highlight uh, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, having governors in place that would sign legislation to at least protect the people in their state. Um, that's why it would be important to have governors or alternatively, if they, you know, there, there's a legislation, there's a legislative, a legislature that they have in that state that's trying to pass something that would not be in the best interest of the citizens of that state, having a, a, a democratic governor there to possibly, you know, veto uh, that legislation, which veto is basically to not, agree to sign off on it and and which essentially could you know would stop the bill from passing uh if it were if it were to you know have a negative effect on the citizens of the state so that's that was that's the reason for 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 that's the reason to be happy about seeing an increase you know potentially in democratic governors in places and do you think that typically well since it seems that the Democratic Party is less likely or has been less likely to uh, contest elections or um, not concede. Why would that be important for governors to be, why would it be important for Democrats to pick up governor seats in that situation? So coming up on the 2024 election, right? Last election, there was the big lie. There was a coup, there was an insurrection. All because someone believed that there was election fraud that was never proven. In And what became super scary was that some of these states 
hung in the balance of if they wanted to kind of join that thought process or not. So now a lot of these swing states have Democratic governors. What does that tell you as far as going forward, our election security as far as people taking the results um, as they are and and uh, and factually without conspiracy theories or lies? Again, I think that's... So, you know, having a governor in place that would not contribute to any of those uh, conspiracies or, or or attempts to um, circumvent the, the votes that were cast by the people in those states, that would be the main purpose uh, for for having. Well, in, in those particular instances, that that would be the advantage of having uh, Democratic governors in place. Or again, governors in place who who aren't there to to feed conspiracy theories. Um, even more importantly, in these states, um, as we saw in Georgia, which this person goes up and down, um, back in 2020, there was the Secretary of State's office. You know, those are those are places; those are the chief election officers of the states. And having good people in place in those places, um, that is also one of the more important uh, statewide seats to have just to make sure that, you know, every vote is fairly counted and there's not some sort of suspicious thing going on um, that that would lead to them, you know, uh, uh, assisting in overturning an election that was that, that clearly was, was in a direction that they didn't want it to go in. Right. An unfounded, um, unfair election. Okay. I can speak for myself. I, up until the pandemic, I really didn't realize how important governors were. You know, like that's when I really realized, oh, wow. So state to state, your governor really has a lot to do when it comes to something like this. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then when the, the big lie happened, then I realized, like you said, the secretaries of state and how important they were. Because if you're like me and you're going through your ballot and you're like, secretary, who the fuck? I don't care who the secretary, I don't even know who these people are. Like, why, oh, how does that affect me in my state? Like, secretary of state of my state, like, I don't even know. And that, and this is where it becomes a big deal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so both the pandemic and uh, the big lie of in the 2020 election were times that really it registered to me as political as I am. These are things I did not consider or know or have an experience of being like, oh, this is important and this is why or why I need to be a little bit more invested in these races as well or these people and who's going to represent um, me and my state. Okay. Um, why do you think, Roderick, uh, voting is so difficult in some states? And uh, which states offhand do you think are the most difficult to vote in? Um, well, I mean, I, I think anywhere where it's harder t- to vote, it's because there are people who want a particular outcome and they think that if they make it harder for people to vote, uh, then it's more likely that the people who they want to vote, uh, will cast a vote in their, in, in, uh, in their favor. Um, I, I, you were about to say. No, I want you to finish cause this is your uh, expertise. Well, no, I, 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 um, along along those lines, you know, places where there there is no early voting, 
which again, I mean, the biggest thing is it's so hard to vote for people if there's only one day to vote or if there's only one way to vote. Yes. And, and so, I am in California, which is one of the easiest states to vote in. I would say California and Colorado off the back of, uh, off the top of my head, the California and Colorado are two of the easiest places. I know California has early voting. We have mail-in voting. Every single person, if you're registered to vote, you get a mail-in ballot that you can send back or you can go in person. Uh, you can track your mail-in ballot. It's super easy. Uh, there's a lot of different polling places. Every When I have gone in, in person, I've been able to go up to quite a few weeks beforehand. I've never waited in a very long line. Um, there was an instance when I was 18, my first election ever, which was the Bush-Gore election. I was registered in the state of California. I was very excited to vote my first presidential election. And I had recently moved from Pasadena to Van Nuys. And I showed up at my polling place, which is what it said on my little voter ticket that I had gotten. I showed up there with my Minnesota ID, right? Because I was still, you know, I just moved, but I had registered. I was registered now in the state of California to vote. I had, you know, done that legally. I showed up and the polling place was at someone's house, which was kind of weird. But it was at someone's house, like in their garage, like next to their house. And the man who looked at my um, ID said to me, oh, you live in California? I said, yes, I'm registered here. I showed him my little voter packet thing that said that this is where I was supposed to vote. And he was like, well, do you live at this address in Pasadena? And I was like, no, I just moved, but this is my voter location. That's why I'm here. I drove from Van Nuys to come to my voter location. And he said, I'm sorry, you can't vote here. You have to vote in Van Nuys. Well, at that point in 2000, it wasn't as accessible now as it is in California. And I could not vote that day. I did not know where else I was supposed to go. I didn't, I tried to call some numbers and I couldn't figure out a definitive answer. And I had to train that day. I was on a scholarship or an apprenticeship program and I had gotten up so early to drive to Pasadena to vote before my day started. And this man turned me away, which I found out later was illegal. Mm. Uh, my vote was suppressed. And I, that was illegal for him to do. And if you notice that election was a highly publicized election for a number of reasons. And Gore did, you know, end up not following through with any kind of a recount going forward or anything like that. But that did happen to me. And that does happen. Now, that happened in a state like California and our election, you know, our ability to vote has gotten a lot easier here. But just for people who may not be aware, like you're saying in other states, it is a one day only. It's a dream girls one night only one. It's literally one day only you have to vote. So if you're working that day, good luck to you. If you need childcare that day and you can't get it, good luck to you. If you don't have a ride that day, good luck to you. If you don't have your ID because of A, B, and C, D, E, F, G, whatever, good luck to you. If you can't get off work in between and you can't get to a voting place before you start work or after, good luck to you. If the lines are too long, good luck to you. So it really, and it is not a federal holiday. So most people that could benefit most by voting to improve their life circumstance may not be able to vote because they're working, because they don't have that day off. Um, we have days off for Columbus Day. We have days off for so many reasons, but not for voting. And yep. um, I think there's a real good reason for that. And I think uh, one of the biggest things going forward, in my opinion, and I'm sure in yours because of the work that you do, 
is how to get people more access to being able to vote. So early voting, obviously, so people have flexibility of when they can vote. If they must vote in person, if they don't have other options, then having an early voting couple weeks to be able to fit their schedule in is definitely something that would be necessary. Personally, and I know you probably agree with me, I think every state should have a mail-in ballot option. I think every state should have two weeks early voting minimum. And I think voting should be a a holiday, period. And I wonder what the demographics of that would look like if that were to happen. You know, yeah, I definitely a holiday, definitely early voting. There are only four states that do not have a form of early in-person voting that doesn't require some form of an excuse. Like you you hear hear no excuse absentee or something like that, which is basically... It, which is essentially what California has or a place like Cal- not Colorado, but um, like Oregon and Washington, where it's like they mail out the votes, they mail out the ballots, you, you, and you complete them and send them in. Or, you know, you can go to a polling place eventually on Election Day. Uh, but so, yeah, there are four states, uh, Alabama, Mississippi, Connecticut, and New Hampshire that do not have early in-person voting. And this year, Connecticut just passed a ballot measure um connecticut voters voted to have early in in person voting um a process uh activated or instituted so that's encouraging yeah so um that now it just moves to their legislature to to draw up an early voting uh, bill and i think was it south carolina was a was a place that started early voting this year for the first time so um I mean, there's no reason why all of the states don't have it in some form or fashion. Well, there is a reason why. Well, I mean, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there's a reason why reason. we we don't want everyone to vote. I mean, that's that's the reason why they're right. That's the reason why voting's so hard in certain places. Uh, right. It's so, you know, for you know, people you hear can people you hear people complain about whether it's mail-in votes or you know, like California sends everyone a ballot or you know, there are drop boxes. None of these things are a problem if they were to happen in certain states for people. It's like if we did this and I'm not picking on Wyoming, but just for instance, if if this, ha- you know, th- this sort of thing happens in Wyoming, the people who complain about this stuff, they're not complaining about it being in Wyoming. They're complaining about it being in places where folks who don't vote for them in their eyes would vote for. And, and, and not you know, to get into the difference between the two parties, there's there, – there's one party who says that they're okay not letting everybody vote as long as they get their outcome. And then there's another party that says everybody should vote. And then we just see what happens because that's how it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And the other party, and I guess we could, the, the assumption is we know who this party is, the Republican party. Uh, the, the, the deal there is that they don't want to take their chances with everybody voting. And so they spend all their time, whether they, disagree with it or not i mean it's pretty clear they do anything that they can to suppress votes Uh, but that's under the guise of fraud right which right which well but what was the excuse in 1965 fraud it's it's, right so yeah i mean it's it's always it's never it's always been the same thing um with with you know the parties have switched but with people who lean more conservative which at this point will be republican there's always some reason to 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 have these extremely liberal voting uh, rules for some people, 
but not all. Mm-hmm. It's like, I, I'm old enough to remember when I didn't need, and it wasn't that long ago, um, you, you didn't need a photo ID to vote. Um, you just needed to prove that you live somewhere. Right. I had a piece of mail that said that. Right. And, but now, you know, all these places, well, we need, we need photo ID. Well, I mean, we didn't have photo ID for hundreds of years and there was no complaints about fraud. Now, mm-hmm. all of a sudden there's like, there aren't, we don't, I mean, you just talked about it. Nobody has time to make a bunch of fake IDs to go stand in the line two hours on in one day and just drive around the city to vote Listen. eight times. Like it just, like they're just Listen. making up stuff. I believe that if I can only use a coupon code once, right? that they're not going to let me vote twice. It's not that hard. <laughs> I'm just saying, if 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 a coupon code on Amazon or wherever can only be used once, and, and if you try again, it says, I'm sorry, this coupon code has expired, or I'm sorry, you've already used this coupon code. Why does anybody think that that's not what's going on when it comes to this election stuff? And when you are sent a mail-in ballot, it circumvents the fact that mm-hmm. I can't get to a polling place. It circumvents the fact that I might not have a most up-to-date ID. It circumvents the fact that I might be unhoused at the moment, right? And I don't have a piece of mail that says where I'm living. All those things, if I had to go to a PO box and get my mail, or it's being held at a post office or something like that because I'm in between places, whatever that is, whatever that circumstance is, takes it completely, oh, I have kids, I can't get childcare, and I can't wait in a line for stuff. It takes all of that off the table, and it makes everything equal. Talk about equity right? Talk about equity. Voting by mail is the most patriotic, the most equitable way I think there is to vote to date. Because if you have a disability, you don't have to leave your house. You can have someone drop it in a Dropbox or in the mail for you. You can do it on your own time. If you have children, you don't have to find childcare. If you can't afford to get to a polling place, you don't have a car, don't have access, you're too far away or you're working, you can still vote by mail. It, none mm-hmm. of this stuff, it, it, it is the great equalizer of voting. And I, I think it is absolutely insane that it is not in every state that way. I just, I, it is so clear to me that there is a very specific reason why certain people and certain groups of people don't want that to happen because of what the outcome will be. Okay, that, I'll yes. stop talking. Um. What exactly is the, what would you say, because you're in it, what is the feeling within the people working on the campaigns who are boots on the ground, um, who are representing and working for pro-choice candidates right now? Is it a celebratory feeling? Is it a yay, but we have lots of work to do? What What is kind of the vibe? Is it shock and awe because they thought they weren't going to do well? I mean, I think for the people who were on the ground they could see where they, they could see they had a sense of what was happening better than you know there's there's been this whole debate about polls this go around um and and or and or, or whatever the, the experts said were going to happen based on whatever they saw and you could see where 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 folks were energized and they and they and and there were high there was high uh, early voting t- returns, or there was a high return of a uh, of a mail-in ballot. You could see in those places that that is where the victories came, versus in a few places where it did not. So I think it was just it was just all of a combination of when 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 you were when you were getting reports of you know record numbers of people 
record re- record number of people are showing up to to vote early. You could see then that folks were 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 more energized than what the polls suggested would be. Because I mean, again, if there's an increase in in turnout, that usually means that there's going to be a result that is a little more. Uh, I like to say citizen friendly, right? Uh, there again, there there's there's one party that seems to be more concerned about most folks, uh, as opposed to uh the, the alternative and i think when you see more people voting that usually hints that folks are you know they've been energized there's been some encouragement to get out to vote and, and or you know there's been some successful uh efforts to get people out to vote and and again or it, it's just a situation where also you know there are issues that people are concerned about and they want to make sure that 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 they get out and let their voice be heard so i don't it, like I, I think on the ground it depends on where people were there were people felt better in different places than others but again right like you said it's just for everyone it's still like we still have work to do regardless of what the outcome was right it's just it, the it doesn't stop really. yeah it never stops well at this election was very historical um that's why i'm asking about the feeling of the boots on the ground because this um this election was historical i think it will go down as time passes as a bigger and bigger story than even what it is. And it is that typically, historically, whoever's in power loses quite a bit of seats in the Senate and the House. That's just kind of how it goes, right? Because that other side is really amped up. They're pissed off that their team didn't win in the in the mm-hmm. general election. And there's a lot of motivation to change that up or make it difficult. And that's not what happened. Uh, and that didn't really happen in 2018 either, but this one was really kind of significant for a couple of other reasons too. But, um, what stands out to you? I I have my own things of uh, reasons why I think this election was so historical. Is there anything that stands out to you why this election might've been historical? Um, I think it would probably be the fact that uh yeah we we just, we just witnessed the the overturning of a huge right that everyone told us we were panicking when we said that it could be overturned right and 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 we saw that you know in 2015 you, you, right i mean you, yeah i mean you you can't trust you you can't you you can't trust the the the, the words of people who are telling you one thing and it's clear that they're going to do another. So like, you know, I, I think that was, I think that contributed to it, uh, to, to what we saw this year. In addition to, again, you know, there are more, when you look at what's happened in the last few years um, and having more young people get involved in the process, particularly again, this, this election, the last two elections, which were, a couple of the most important in the history of the country. Uh, folks voting in, in those two in those two elections the last couple of years, this is like their first time voting. And you're starting to see those people get more involved as they grew up, you mm-hmm. know, witnessing. Um, they're they're it, COVID it, kids. They're kids that were, you know, didn't get to go to their proms, didn't get to go to their graduations, um, might not have, gotten certain scholarships because of the deadlines of when of when all that had to happen and they were kind of forgotten they were 
you know, that generation has been called Gen Z or the Zoomers because they spent a couple of years on Zoom. And uh, it's also like a reference to their technological era, but it, it is, it's a bunch of kids that looked around and said, wow, um, things are not going the way I'd like them to go, I think. Um, and I think that had a really lasting impact on them. Uh, I heard that Gen Z and millennials are now the largest voting block of people. And again, that's going to be as a block together, that's going to be 18 to 40. Um, mm -hmm. uh, what do you think, like, what in your opinion are like traits of that demographic? I know that's like a really big group of people because you have people that are in their early 40s that were born before the internet and spent, you know, maybe 15 years or so. And, you know, uh, and, uh, uh, you're talking about with me. A, you're talking about me too. <laughs> but we, we we went analog and then we went digital, right? We know what life was like before cell phones and the internet. And then we know what it is with it. And then there's the younger millennials who have always had that technology. And then there's the Zoomers that have always had social media coming into the world. And their you know whole outlook is much different. But are there special traits of this demographic that you would sum up? Um, well, I just, we saw from this most recent election, there was, there are exit polls that, that, that were released, uh, about these demographics and for, and specifically people 18 to 29, uh, nationally, they voted for Democrats over Republicans by 25, by 28 percent, 28 points. So. Um, what, you know, what we're saying is the, the younger people are largely, uh, there, there's something about the democratic party that's, that's drawn them in. Um, obviously the party still has a lot of work to do to, uh, to, to reach younger people to get more than a vote, but it seems that whatever the policies are or whatever the policies they're seeing from the other party, uh, they seem to be choosing, uh, to, 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 to vote for, you know, left-leaning or pro progressive candidates more often than not and those candidates tend to to be in the democratic party okay and uh just a bit a small stat on that voting block of people more than one half of the u.s population is millennials or younger um and again the oldest millennial is right around 40 or 41. um there were a couple historical things that i wanted to mention that i found really exciting about this election uh, not to mention the uh, upset of not having the red wave, but actually having what some would consider a blue wave in certain elections and um, for how much the Democrats held their seats um, could be considered a blue wave. Um, Maxwell Frost, who is Afro-Cuban, 25 years old, so definitely in that Gen Z category, won his Florida, the 10th, Florida 10th district. He won his election. He is the first uh z generation the zoomer mm -hmm. generation to win a seat and he's in the house and that to me was so exciting and i did follow him a little bit early on because i thought he had a lot of energy behind him i didn't know if he could win in florida no matter what the demographics of where he was um would be but um i'm really excited for him and i'm really excited for uh, him to maybe energize and inspire other people in his age demographic to maybe look at politics um, or activism uh, for young people and what's important to them. Uh, and then there, um, oh, and this is just a random fact. 
um, the average age of a house member is 58. So now that's the average age. There are people that are slightly younger and then there's people who are going to be much older. But the average age of a House member in Congress is 58 years old and Maxwell Frost is 25. There are um, people in the House three times older than him. Yes. Yes. <laughs> More than three so, times older than him. Yes. Yeah, so you have him and then you have 80-year-olds. So 58 is the, <laughs> is the middle road of that, I guess. Um, and then Karen Bass did won her, win her election as mayor in uh, Los Angeles, which is um, our first black female mayor, uh, which is exciting to me in particular. Um, those are two things that I thought were interesting. I heard this stat, and I don't know if this is true, and I don't expect you to fact check this, but I heard that only 27% of that voting block actually voted too. So not only are they a large voting block that basically has the potential to wash any um, election with whoever they go with, uh, mm-hmm. but only 27% of that voting block actually did vote. Um, well, I do have a stat for you. Uh, I highlight I highlight one state um, to to go along with that, um, hoping that we got to the subject. Uh, so, yes, people under 40, 40 and under have the largest voting block in in. Let's just we can just break it up by states. In most states, uh, the most voters you're going to find, and this is according to census information, the most voting age people there are are between. 18 and 40 like those are always the larger groups and as you get older those groups get smaller for obvious reasons um but you know for you look at georgia for instance georgia there are three million over three million registered voters between the age of 18 and 40 uh you compare that to voters 65 and older 1.5 million there's almost two times as many registered voters who are Gen Z and millennial versus folks who fall into the category of, you know, for the retired. And those right? are just registered. That's not even people yes. who are unregistered. Those are people who are registered. So you did part of the work, right? You're registered. You did the thing to sign up to do the thing. Correct. Now, when you get to the actual numbers of people who voted out of that, and I'll just get into percentages of 18 to 40, they have twice as many registered voters. During early voting, the turnout of that group was 16%. Disappointing. Would you like to take a guess? <laughs> what, what, <laughs> what the turnout was of people 65 and older? 55%. Well, you would be too low. Uh, but close. And it I was, did go conservative too. I was like 98%. They have nothing no, better to do than vote. Right. The 56%. So. Oh, I said 55 and it's yeah, 56. Yeah, you were close. You were really close. Yes. But, but that's the thing. It's like, think about the fact that you have twice as many people voting. But when you look at these turnout numbers, what happens is there were only 487,000 young people. I'll use for I'll, I'll keep us young at forty. I'm I'm, I'm a little past Thank that. Thank you for that. <laughs> Four hundred and eighty-seven thousand people voted during early voting. That falls in the largest group of registered voters. Meanwhile, in the smaller group, eight hundred and eighty-six thousand people voted in this in this in this much smaller group. Almost you have almost twice as many registered voters 
they had almost twice as many registered votes in in mm. in the reverse. And so so the numbers what, are there, but it's getting people to actually show up and cast their vote. Yes. And, you know, the complaint can the, the complaint, which is a valid complaint. It's like, well, I'm not voting for anybody who looks like me. And, and by looks like me, it's like there's nobody my age. Well, you have the power to make that choice because mm-hmm. it's a bunch of you. It's mm-hmm. their. I mean, we can we can go to rep, uh, Congressman elect Frost here. Like mm-hmm. if if we 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 have the numbers to vote in people who are younger, the average in the House does not have to be 58. And which, again, there there are plenty of people younger than 58, which tells you that there are plenty of people older than 58. Right. I mean, but then at the same, but it's it's again, it's more about voting for people who are going to vote for the things that you vote for. And so mm-hmm. if the, the, that you support rather and. It really it doesn't matter what their age is, but what you do see is that the older they are, they are less likely to support the things that you're that that you would like them to support uh, if you are younger. So if you 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 have the power to choose the candidates that you want, and 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 I think that that would you know for people who have complaints about the Democratic Party being too old or not being as progressive as they, as they would like, uh, you you have the votes to make that. There are votes there for that for to make that change. Right. Um, both encouraging people. Yeah. Encouraging folks to, to, to encouraging younger people to run, um, and and encouraging, uh, people to vote, to choose those folks to get them in office, like what happened with Mr. Frost or, or, or choosing the people who you would like to vote in. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's interesting. Mm, Politics is not much different than much else. If you want something at your local grocery store, mm-hmm. um, you have to buy it. You have to buy that thing. And not only do you have to buy it, your friends have to buy it. So if you want them to carry um, more organic produce because you want organic produce, you're going to have to buy organic produce. And then you're going to have to get your friends to buy organic produce. And you're going to hope that other people buy organic produce. And you're going to hope that and, and advertise how great organic produce is because you like it better and you want it more, but you have to vote on it with your money and you have to vote yes. on it with your decisions. Now, voting in these elections, it's the same thing. You have to show up and vote in order to um, put your ticket in the bowl towards what you want. Um, and I think uh, I, I do want to appeal if there's any young people listening right now that are specifically in that Gen Z bowl or that bracket if you're still listening to this podcast at this point, um, congratulations. Thank you so much for your service. And also um, know that elections affect you, I believe, more than anybody else. The younger yes. you are, the less control you have, the less money you have, unless you are, um, uh, you know, uh, unless you are the, the, um, the, I'm looking for a weird word that I can't think of, the exception jeez unless you are the exception to the rule right when you're younger you have less funds available to you you have less um, experience in your job you have less power with people and people even taking you seriously right so you are disenfranchised but it doesn't have to be self disenfranchisement you still have quite a bit of power in what you want you have power of speaking out on various social media platforms. We didn't have that kind of a voice when I was younger and I was in that age bracket. We didn't have a voice that spoke to the world, right? It was very much, you know, uh, the status quo. 
Um, and so I think that voting should be the most important to the youth because they have the most to gain from it and they are the most disenfranchised. Um, mm -hmm. So I want to make that appeal to younger voters to empower them instead of being like, oh, this stuff doesn't affect me. No, no, no. It's going to affect you the most. And I hope that's what everything that's going on recently really drives home. And I'm hoping that is some of the uh, energization that's come from the youth with the vote. Is there anything else you think that anyone can do to help energize the youth to vote? Um, well, I mean, uh, yeah. talk to the young people, you know, I guess. <laughs> they ain't going to listen uh, I mean, to us. <laughs> right, but I, 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 like, I like your analogy because you think about this is one of those unique places when you talk about, you know, when when I go to the local store, I vote with my dollars, right? And mm -hmm. if I if I spend my money on these things, they will have them. And if I don't, that they won't. Even so, so in this particular instance, look at all the things that that cater to younger people, or look at what the like what like when it comes to television, the key demographic is eighteen to forty nine. It's mm -hmm. like that's what all the advertisement is for. It's right. like they want this s specific group, right? And so. We don't we don't see that in politics, but the thing is, it's like young people drive everything. Young people always drive the culture, whatever mm -hmm. the time is. It's mm -hmm. like it's music and entertainment and everything else, sports, um, because those all requ those are all driven by young people or require young people to be a part of it so that we know what's going on. And the same is here. It's like you said, these things affect young people the most because if I have an eighty year old or in some instances, a 90-year-old passing legislation uh, that is going to affect me personally or the, and or this planet for the next 50, 60 years, they're not going to have to deal with the consequences. It's mm -hmm. like it, it's like the, the younger people are, the youngest folks. And so in that particular instance, it, it would be that that's one of the reasons to encourage people to get involved. It's like you won't, I wouldn't let my grandparents choose the things I wear or what I, or, or what I eat or what I listen to, or what I watch. So why am I letting my grandparents choose the laws that affect me personally on a daily basis? That's and a really I, good point. And so Not that, even our grandparents, is, our parents. We don't even want our parents to dictate those right. things for us. So you're, <laughs> Take you it another have, generation. Yeah, you have great-grandparents <laughs> making choices for you right. that have the most effect on you personally, whether it's it, it, it affects your education, it, right. it affects it affects your your income it affects your health these are folks making these decisions based on whatever whatever values that they um you know formed in 1950 <laughs> like that those are the folks that are making the decisions for you and and that's that's one of the main reasons why you know we still have these barriers um but still that i mean that's that's one of the main reasons why young people must get involved because eventually it's going to these things are always going to affect them and eventually long term it's going to affect them more than than it does right now i agree i agree um this could be a very long answer so keep let's keep it let's keep it like mm -hmm. short why do you think the polarization of parties has increased so dramatically in the last several years yeah. Mm. Is that a no comment from you? <laughs> there, there are so many 
factors. Uh, um, I have a theory, actually. Please share, because I mean, I, I don't. I mean, my. I mean, I think. I mean, obviously, one of the reasons polarization has increased is because it is. I mean, there's always been polarization, but yes, but there are more. There's, I mean, I, I mean, the biggest answer would be the access to information, um, or excuse me, the 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 access, the the ability to the access to share more information, okay, whether so that's information, right? Essentially, essentially digital, you know, social media, whatever, whether the information is correct or incorrect. Um, social media it's transferring information everybody having a say publicly yes everybody has a platform anybody can say anything mostly without consequence Mm -hmm. and you know there are plenty of people who for the most part you know there may be a person um in in california and a person in france who have the same opinion and they wouldn't have known that uh if (laughs) prior to like you know 1998 yeah i agree with that and so now it's like you know i think it's the ability to share uh i think i think the ability to see more ridiculous things and that there are more ridiculous things that that people um do believe in that we thought that they didn't i think that has contributed to this and and but and i mean as far as the you know the parties go just people people taking advantage of, of, of seeing that these things exist and adding gasoline to it. Yes. I like to call that showbiz. <laughs> so then, that's my theory. In addition to social media and the transfer and sharing of, of, pers- of, I say personal information, but like your personal viewpoints and, you know, uh, back in the nineties, it might've been polarized, but you didn't know that your neighbor you know, felt a certain way about something. You just knew your neighbor and you liked your neighbor. You didn't know that, you know, your neighbor was different politically than you were necessarily. It wasn't as talked about out in the open. Um, you know, I grew up in a family that was very like, don't talk about politics and don't talk about money. You don't talk about how much you make and you don't talk about the politics, right? So that's kind of like a weird thing to get over if that's how you've been brought up. But I do think that showbiz has something to do with this. And I think that I don't know when, this started could have started a long time ago, or it could be more recent. Uh, people realized that they could use the same um, emotional manipulation that you use in telling stories in showbiz um, with political parties. And if you get people to be afraid or outraged, you you've got them. You've got them, and they are going to help you do whatever you need to do if they are emotionally triggered or emotionally ramped up which to me comes down to entertainment. It really does because that's why we seek out entertainment to feel, in my opinion. So uh, I think that that has become big business. I think politics is closer to entertainment than it even is to sports, even though I make that analogy. Um, anyways, that's my that's my theory. Uh, what would be, what's your greatest hope um, for uh, legislator le- legislation that could be accomplished. So, like, do you have a favorite um, category of legislation? I think I already know what this answer is, but if there's like one thing you could pass tomorrow, um, or that you're the most hyped about, uh, what would it be? I 
I would say voting rights legislation. And the reason I would say that is because if we could remove all of the voting barriers, then that the result would be the ability to vote for and pass vote for the people who you want to be in power to to pass all of the things that we could we would like passed that you would feel be... like the real will of the voters would speak yes i would i would agree with that actually as much as i am a die hard you know uh reproductive rights you know advocate I do think that it starts with people voting. And I think that as long as people are disenfranchised and as long as people are um, uh, experience voter obstacles, that the true will of the people will never truly be expressed. Mm -hmm. And everything is like a guesstimate of what it could be. I don't think it's um, a proper... I don't believe... And necessarily a lot of these states being blue or red, I believe in them being suppressed states. Um, and I would love to see what those states looked like unsuppressed. Um, what are some of the easiest ways to get involved in um, anything politically? Like, like if you are not someone who's trying to make it their life goal to be working on a campaign or anything like that, but you're someone like me who has a bit of an affinity for certain elections or all elections and um, certain candidates or this or the other, what are some things, easiest ways to get involved? Um, if you see uh, a candidate that you would like to help, if then you could get involved that way, uh, you know, volunteering or whatever. Alternatively, if you don't want to necessarily support a candidate, um, but you want, there's a cause that you would like to support. You know, there are various nonprofit organizations that, uh, get involved in that, that have, that have, a you know, sections that allow for people to volunteer to help, um, you know, get involved with turning out, you know, voters, you know, encouraging voter registration or, you know, helping people get rise to the polls. Um, you know, talk about what you did. I mean, you know, it, it could be, um, writing postcards to people to to you know uh, inform them encourage them alert them that there's an election coming up um and and that doesn't necessarily again have to it doesn't have to be on the, on behalf of a candidate it could be you know for instance um trying to think of uh when i did them not for profit organization but yeah, yeah you when know, i you, did you, them they weren't it wasn't for a specific candidate it was just right. like hey go vote you know like and for those of you who have never done postcards before you order the postcards through whatever the, well, a lot of times you order the postcards through the site or you can get them yourself. You pay for postage. So it's kind of like, that's your way of donating. And so I'm just giving money, you know, like a blanket amount to um, a, a party or a candidate. You just donate in the way of you're buying these postcards you buy, or you buy the stamps, they provide the postcards and then they send you what to write and they tell you exactly what to write. And they say, please don't defer from this. You know, they're like, this is what we want you to write. It's always very, you know, it's nice. It's 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 not um, aggressive in any way. And then they give you a list of names to send them to and a deadline of when you need to put them in the mail by. And it's a really nice, like, passive way of feeling proactive without having to be, like, calling people on the phone or knocking on people's doors, which for some of us is just, like, uh, not really ready for that type of interaction when it comes to voting and stuff like that. Um, so it's an, it's a really nice passive way to be involved and feel like you're doing something and it's, it's easy. Um, I really enjoy doing postcards. 
so yeah, just you know, look whether it's a it's a local organization um, in your city, county, state, um, or a national organization. There are plenty of ways to uh, you know just get involved that way. Okay, and then I have one last question. Um, do you have a favorite politician or politicians? And do you have a favorite activist? I'll jump to activists first. I guess okay. the easiest would be historically um, Martin Luther King, just from the work that he did that the work that he did um, and the, the leadership that he provided for the entire movement that led to me doing the work that I do today. Nice. So sweet. And any favorite politicians? I really You're like, I don't have always <laughs> been a big fan of, uh, even before she was in office, the work that Elizabeth Warren did. I'm just a, um, I'm just a huge fan of of the uh, the initiatives that she is. I did not know for. that about you. Yeah, I love it. I'm gonna share mine since I asked you yours. But I have like lists because I also had the question, so I had time to make a list. Okay. Um, I love Obama. Mm -hmm. um, I love Hillary Clinton. Yes. Uh, love Budetaji. Love Katie Porter, AOC, Cory Booker, Tammy Duxworth. I even love Bernie. I like I like a lot of the things he says, and I like his drive. I like I like him. Um, as far as uh, I also like Kamala very much. Um, as far as activists go, um, I love Angela Davis and I love Jane Fonda. Um, as far as young activists, I really like Olivia Julian and David Hogg. Mm. Um, and if you guys don't know Olivia Julian, she is a hardcore um, choice advocate and activist. Um, she raises a ton of money for those causes. Um, I highly recommend checking her out because uh, she is in particularly, you know, she's particularly related as an activist for this podcast, you know, as far as the content and what we discuss on this podcast. Um, I mean, I think that is all the questions and I feel like I have held you hostage under questioning for quite a long time now. Um, I hope people make it through this whole episode because I think it's invaluable. But for some reason, when it comes to politics, people get very, I don't know how, I don't know how anybody could find any of it boring, but I don't know. People, you know, people want to be entertained. And that's what I'm saying. Politics is entertainment. You just got to see it that way. Razzle dazzle. Um, but Roderick, thank you so much for being on the podcast, not just um, being a producer and a silent um, silent person on the podcast, but an actual speaking person <laughs> on the podcast, your information and your background has been invaluable. And I'm so, so, so happy to be able to utilize it, give it to the public, give it to the listeners. And um, so proud to know you and have you uh, work on the podcast and on the podcast. I am glad that I could be a speaking guest this go around. <laughs> and I'm sure uh, maybe I'll make you come on from time to time just, you know, to weigh in on random things. If you ever hear me say podcast producer Roderick or Roderick the producer, you know exactly who we're talking about now. That would be me. Don't twist my arm. 
Thanks, Roderick. Thank you. If you made it this far, thank you so much for listening. And I hope you were able to find something relatable in today's episode. As I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, this is also a social experiment to see if in telling my story and the stories of others, I can embolden listeners to share their stories. If you'd like me to read your abortion story, anonymous or otherwise, on this podcast, please email graymaybestories at gmail.com. G-R-E-Y-M-A-Y-B-E-S. T-O-R-I-E-S at gmail.com. One who helped make this Gray Maybe podcast happen. Producer and editor Roderick Barge. Cover photo by Jose Perez. Music licensed by Pixabay. Special counsel Jada Ellingham and Roderick Barge. Special shout out to supporter Patty Olgain. If you'd like to support this podcast, please rate, share, comment, and subscribe. Until next time, bye for now.